Well, good morning. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at MetroLife Church. If you're new to us, thank you for being with us today. Uh, would you turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 1? Daniel chapter 1. We're going to begin a new series in the book of Daniel. And what we're looking at in this new series is kingdom convictions. And, and you may wonder why it is that we've, we've titled it that. There are so many rich accounts that are captured for us in the book of Daniel. Uh, but it actually goes back a little ways into our Roman series that we had. I think it was the majority of last year that we were preaching through the book of Romans. And on occasion, we would talk about having a conviction. That's a, a deeply held belief. It's a belief that's not going to be shaken by the circumstances that we walk through. And, and I wondered at times as we were preaching through that series, do we all understand what convictions are in the life of the believer? Do we all understand what a, a conviction is? I don't mean conviction as in you are guilty of doing something. I mean that, that deeply held belief that's not going to be shaken by anything that happens in life around you. And I just began to kind of talk about this with the team. And as we were kind of praying through this new year, really felt like that that was a, an, an aspect of what we wanted to look at God's word for. And I couldn't think of a better book than the book of Daniel to look at that. But here's what I love about our eldership and the leadership here in the church is these are men and women who are praying for us as a church. They've been praying for months for this morning. N not just because of this message, but I mean, we are constantly praying and seeking God and asking, what in the life of the church do we need to give attention to it? And I just appreciate Mike Nash just very simply sharing. I I've just had this sense that we should spend some time on the kingdom of God. And as, as we were in study, as we were looking at God's word together, we realized the book of Daniel highlights the kingdom of God in some very unique ways. And so that's where we kind of came up with this title, Daniel Kingdom Convictions. And so that's what we're looking at in the book of Daniel. That's what we're considering as we go to Daniel chapter one this morning. But before we begin to read, and I'm just going to kind of read and preach through the passage today, so we're not going to read it all up front. It's the entire chapter that we're covering. But I want to ask the question, have you ever seen the show, What Would You Do? Uh, perhaps you've seen this show, and, and I actually looked at some clips to see if we should show them this morning. We should not, uh, because there are times that it, it really pushes the bounds of what's comfortable, right? I mean, it pushes the bounds of what's comfortable on a number of subjects. And one, I didn't want to, for families that have some younger children in here, I didn't want to introduce themes that you may not be talking through yet. Uh, I hope that that's a blessing to you. Uh, but more than that, I just realized... There's a reason that this, this show exists, and it's because of how loose morals, ethics, and convictions are these days. It's easy to build a reality TV show on so many different truths. It's easy to build a reality TV show when, when you understand that you can put this scene in the middle of a grocery store, you can put this scene in the middle of a restaurant, and you know that you're going to provoke a number of different responses to it. It's, it's easy writing. And that's unfortunate today because of how loose morals and ethics and truth have become in our society and, and this is not a, intended to be a sermon series that is just railing against society. But I think it is one that equips us to be believers who are representative of a heavenly kingdom in an earthly society. That is not necessarily upholding and 
affirming the values that we hold as those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Bought with such a great price. And so this show, What Would You Do, exists to kind of mess with the mind a little bit and ask the question. I think it's intended to be a conversation starter around many homes. I know that there have been a couple of clips that we've seen as a family that we have found to be very helpful. Uh, Like I said, as I was kind of looking around on YouTube, there were a number of clips I found to be unhelpful. But the book of Daniel is going to open up for us with several different scenes kind of asking the question of us today. What would you do? What would you do if you were in this scenario? And I want to be careful as we ask that question at the outset because my goal here today is not to say, dare to be like Daniel. I'm not here to try to create a church that has a lot of cookie-cutter Daniels through it. That's not the point of this. I think that that's actually a form of moralism where we're trying to be good to receive good from God. I think that that's what that creates, but the book of Daniel encourages me, it encourages you as God's people to trust in his providence and to remain faithful, no matter the circumstances that we're walking through. Why is it that we can remain faithful no matter what it is that we're walking through? Because the Lord God is in complete control over his kingdom. And and we're kind of faced with this in this stark reality of what would you do? So the first chapter, let me just give a brief outline since we're going to kind of chop it up. The first chapter introduces the book as a whole by describing how Daniel and his three friends were brought into Babylon. They were educated there in Babylonian culture. And Daniel's faith is put to the test along with his friends. And then the chapter is going to end with Daniel and his three friends being promoted into the service of the king, Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps you've heard that name before. Perhaps, you know, I, I call it felt board theology when you think back to like your, your childhood and Sunday school, or at least it was felt boards back in my day, uh, puppets and that kind of thing. But perhaps your felt board theology kind of kicks in in this moment and you're like, I've heard this story before. And so you might be tempted to kind of check out, but there's a couple of points where I just want to call us to be careful not to check out because I believe that this passage speaks to us. No matter our age, our season of life, our family status, employment, schooling, no matter what it is that's going on in life, this passage equips us today as the people of God. So don't dare to be a Daniel today, but I dare you to believe in his God. I dare you to believe in his God. I dare you to take God at his word this morning. And I don't say that. I I do like challenging us as a congregation. I do like challenging us as a church. But I, I say it in that kind of a stark way to help us realize what it is that God's word wants to do today in our hearts. I believe this is what we're going to see as we study through this chapter. Christians are called to imitate Christ's steadfastness as he faced persecution and death for our sake and we do this by being true to God and his message even in times of difficulty and adversity more than just calling us to something like being steadfast it's going to equip us to stand no matter the circumstance so can we pray together that we would receive rightly from the word of God Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it's not just this list of do's and don'ts, but it's not less than that either. 
your word lights a path for us to walk in to bring you glory. And so we ask this morning, shine brightly on our hearts. Illuminate our minds that we may live for you. God, our heart is that we want to bring you as our sovereign, as our creator, as our redeemer. We want to bring you glory. And so we ask for your help even now in receiving that we may live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now as we begin our passage today, I believe that we're going to see that God may send you to a difficult place to proclaim his glory. Now, I think this is one of those moments where it's easy to check out. And, the, and the, the, one of the themes in the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God in all things. So it may be easy kind of right off the bat to think like, God may send you to a difficult place to bring, proclaim his glory. Chris must be talking about missions. Well, first, thank you for giving me the opportunity to refer to myself in the third person. Uh, that inner child wrestler of mine always loves to do that. But... The question isn't that we're asking, is this about foreign missions? Is this about being on, quote-unquote, the mission field? We are always, as ambassadors of Christ, on mission. Your home may be the mission field that you're called to right now. Your workplace, your campus may be the place that you are called to be. You may have employees that are difficult. You may have a difficult employer. You may be one who teaches in a classroom and you realize this is the difficult place that I am called to be to proclaim the glory of God. And you may be in a classroom where you have a professor who is kind of lording his lack of faith over your faith and that may be the place that you are called to proclaim the glories of God. So let's not check out at the outset. Let's be engaged and realize that this is, this is where God's word wants to equip us for the glory of God. Let's read together, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Joachim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Joachim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasuries of his, his God. So what do we see here? We see conquest. Right off the bat, we see conquest. Jerusalem is besieged by Babylon. More than that, the, the temple artifacts are brought out and put into the treasury of another God. What is, what is intended in that moment? It's to say, my God's better than yours. That's what he's trying, that's what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to say over Joachim and his kingdom. My God is better than yours. Look, yours is in the treasury of my God. That's what this conquest, that's what this conqueror has created. I like what Dale Davis says in his commentary on the message of Daniel. He says this, sometimes God may allow hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. So let's think about that mission field that you're in right now. In your home, your campus, your workplace. Is hardship befalling you because he wants his mercy to reach others through you? We use language like hardship and suffering and and different things like that. And, And I'll confess, I can struggle at times with, is this a hardship? Is this an annoyance? Is this suffering? How about this? 
God is always wanting to extend his mercy to others through us, no matter our circumstances. So it kind of takes us out of having to worry about where it qualifies on the suffering spectrum, doesn't it? It's just about calling then. It's just about who we are in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're in Jesus Christ, I'm talking to you. And if you're not here and you're not in Jesus Christ, doesn't it seem like it would bring so much meaning to your hardship and those things that you walk through in life if you had some purpose in the midst of that to proclaim the glory of God? It's the greatest purpose any of us could have. It's the greatest aim any of us could have in the midst of our lives to proclaim his glories. Sometimes God may allow hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. God has a purpose in hardship that is always multifaceted. As a pastor, I I often get to be with families in the midst of suffering. And many of you know our story as a family right now. We are in the midst of hardship and loss and suffering in this season. It's weird seeing it from two different sides of the same spectrum. But here's what's amazing. God is the same. He doesn't change at all. He's always working for what? His glory and our good. He's always working for those things. Why is it that he's going to allow suffering in the lives of his people? Well, he's demonstrating his sovereignty over all things. He is strengthening the faith of his people. He is showing himself as wise and strong. And and I'll confess there are times that loss doesn't feel wise or strong. It feels like weakness. What does scripture remind me and remind my heart and my mind in the midst of those circumstances? In my weakness, he is what? He is made strong. He is showing himself putting his glory on display among the nations, among your home, among your classroom, among your campus or your place of employment. Why? So that others would be drawn to him. So that others might be drawn to him. You know, I I think about what our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine are going through right now. They've been walking through this for some years now, even, even years where we have hosted them, as we will, in a couple of weeks for the Grace Partnership Conference. I'm not even sure if they're able to be here today, but our brothers and sisters have, have been living under this kind of oppressive threat of Russia amassing on the border. There's a church right in the midst of that that we have fellowship with, and I think about our brothers and sisters there. And the amazing testimonies of the glory of God that are coming out of that conquest or perceived conquest to come. See, when I think about them and the sovereignty of God in the midst of all of these circumstances that we're walking through, it doesn't kind of say, you know what, God is sovereign, so I'm not going to pray for them. It actually informs my prayers for them. It makes my prayers more fervent and specific toward them. Lord, strengthen our brothers and sisters, some of whom have been in this room with us. Strengthen our brothers and sisters to proclaim your glory in the midst of this threat of oppression. That's an understanding of the sovereignty of God. I look forward to hearing the stories, but I don't wish these things on them. 
I don't want more of this for them. But in the midst of what they are walking through, I want to see the glory of God go forward. Because his testimony will not end with one ruler on this earth or another. Scripture informs us of that as well, that it is God who causes rulers to rise and to fall. So it helps inform and sharpen our prayers by these truths and make them more fervent for our friends. Throughout history, armies have invaded nations. They've they've come in with these acts of aggression and war, and we know some of the horrible stories of that. Tragic stories of land being destroyed or property confiscated and taken. POWs taken captive, sent away to foreign lands, never to be seen by friends or family again. And we begin to understand the context that Daniel opens with. That's what's happened with Daniel and his friends. They have been plucked out of Jerusalem and brought over to Babylon. They were uprooted and replanted in Babylonian soil. But it was God's doing. It was God's plan. No, I'm not going to quote Drake right here. We need to understand what it is that God's doing. We need to be careful when we're in the midst of moments that we cry out rightly to our sovereign. When we're in the midst of moments where we don't see from an earthly perspective, it's important for us to cry out to God for understanding for his perspective. What a a great gift to be given his perspective on circumstances in life. I got to keep going. We're just two verses in. But I want to slow down here for just one more moment. Because in the same way that I think it's easy for us to disqualify ourselves by saying, well, he must be talking about foreign missions. I think it's easy for us to disqualify whether you're here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ or you're here and you have never submitted yourself to his lordship over your life. You have never received the gift of salvation. I think the temptation is the same for both groups. I think it's easy for us to look at our lives and the sin that we've had in our own lives and say this disqualifies God from working through me. This disqualifies me from being a vessel for the glory of God. Now, I don't want to highlight sin. I don't want to encourage sin. I like job security. That's not the kind I'm looking for. But I want to put sin in its proper place. Even our sinfulness submits to the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's never idolatry, uh, make an idol of our sin. I couldn't even come up with the right word there. Let's never make an idol of our sin that we raise it to a place that's more powerful than the blood of Jesus Christ. May we never be guilty of that as a church. May we never be guilty of that in our own minds. May we never look at our sin and say there is something that is unredeemable about this. What a gross misunderstanding of the good news of the gospel. And this is where I believe that God is stretching us as a church. That the gospel is big enough for these things. That the gospel is powerful enough to utilize your testimony, your story, your redemption for his glory. 
So we don't look at our failings of the past and say, well, I was never a good husband, so I'll just keep not being a good husband. What a foolish way to look at life. Well, I was a failure as a parent. Look at what happened with this particular child. Oh, look at what happened in this particular relationship. I could, I could never bring the truth of God in the midst of these circumstances. The truth of God stands above all of your failings. And it equips you to live for his glory now. So we never let our sin become something that disqualifies us because God works in spite of our sins. I know this because the first two verses tell us about Jerusalem being conquered by Babylon. Now, the words very specifically say, and the Lord gave Babylon, gave, gave Jerusalem to Babylon. Yikes. That's scary language. It reminds me of language that we see elsewhere in Scripture where the Lord gives His people over to their passions when they continue to pursue that sinfulness. It reminds me of language that, that where we just continue to pursue and run the opposite direction of the grace of God and the Lord gives us our way. What a frightening, damning place to be. Jerusalem had been on a slide for some time. Their sinfulness was beginning to become the stuff of legend. But here's where we see God's sovereignty. In verse 1, we get an understanding of the historical context of what's happening in the book of Daniel. Spiritual decline. A kingdom that had been in political decline. Not serving the things of the Lord. This southern kingdom in Judah and Nebuchadnezzar comes in and attacks them in 605 B.C. Verse 1 gives us the historical context, but verse 2 helps us understand theologically what's going on. This is where we see the sovereignty of God. This happened because the Lord gave King Joachim, Judah, over to him. That's never a place I want to find myself given over to myself. No, I, I want to I lay my life down at the feet of my Savior. How does this help us understand that God works in spite of the sins of his people? Daniel verses 1 and 2 kind of summarized say this, the people of God have sinned and the real God is judging them. And in the process, he's extending his presence among the nations. God is at work even in the midst of the sin of his people. I think it's helpful what Todd Wilson says about this in a 12-week study that Crossway has put together on the book of Daniel. He says this, there is a compatibility between divine sovereignty and human agency. These are not to be set in opposition, but understood as different perspective on the same unfolding events. So I think it's wise in our perspective of life not to limit God's sovereignty in our circumstances. And I think it's wise not to make an idol of our past sinful actions as if God could not use them for our good and for his glory. The good news of the gospel is big enough to handle these things. I dare you to believe it. Let's move on. In this life, 
we should expect to face obstacles in our faith from a non-Christian culture. And here's where it's important for us to understand that we all have what should be known and understood as a worldview. We all have a perspective of looking at and seeing life in the world in which we live and the way it's working together. And here's what it does. It begins to shape us the way that we think and the way that we live. God's word is intended to be this equipping tool for us to shape and inform our worldview as those who follow Jesus Christ. I actually like what Sinclair Ferguson says on commentary on this passage. He says, A spiritual conflict lies at the heart of every event, however great, however mundane. Our own contribution to history depends on our answer to this question. Am I living for the city of God according to its code of conduct or am I living according to the bylaws of the city of destruction? God's ultimate purpose in the midst of Daniel and his friends being plucked out of this city was mercy. It was an extension of the mercy of God. Babylon was going to be the scene of Daniel's lifelong service. We see that at the end of the chapter, and we'll highlight again in just a moment. It's the scene where Daniel's lifelong service in the kingdom of of God happens, and it's the sphere that he would demonstrate what Psalm 137.4 says when it says that we are going to sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land. So let's read together. Then the king commanded... Asphanes, his eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both his royal family and of the nobility. Verse 4, Daniel chapter 1. Used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. We're going to come back to that in just a few moments. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Isn't it funny that we know them by their foreign names? The name change can be a study of all of its own, and I'd encourage you to take a look at this. Because essentially what Nebuchadnezzar and his court did was they stripped out the name of Yahweh in every opportunity they had, and they put in the name of foreign gods. So we talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As we study them in a few weeks, and as that's the name that tends to come to mind, we need to understand that's a foreign God that we are naming in the midst of that moment. This isn't, again, kind of knocking felt board theology. It's a right understanding of what's going on here. But don't be surprised if your faith catches someone's eye. Don't be surprised if your faith, if your your stability in your Christian walk catches the eye of the world around you. If people say there's something attractive about that person and how stable they are. Stability is something that is highlighted today, and I think rightfully so, because we live in such an unstable world. But people are drawn to those who are settled in who they are, especially when they find their identity in Jesus Christ. When he is their constant 
firm in their conviction, living out their own beliefs. It's actually the most practical form of apologetics that we can adopt as a part of our evangelistic mission as the people of God. Live your life like you believe in that God that you worship right now. Today we live in a context not just increasingly non-Christian, secular in worldview, I think increasingly post-Christian. And what I simply mean by that is so often people are having life events like weddings and funerals outside of the church. It never ceases to amaze me meeting people here at the church for a wedding that this is the first time in their life they've stepped in to the doors of a church. And you may think, well, that sounds crazy. No, that's the world we're living in. It's not crazy, it's our mission field. Now how is it that Daniel and his three friends faced the pressures and similar challenges in their day to what we face today? Well, I think verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1 gives us an idea that they are being isolated. What happens? King Nebuchadnezzar says, find me these type of young men. And they are isolated from the rest of their tribe. There is an indoctrination that happens in the midst of their training for three years. That We see that in verse 4. In verse 5, there's an assimilation that happens. And then in verses 6 and 7, with their name changes, there's a confusion that's added by trading out the God that their own names find their identity in. Isolation, indoctrination, assimilation, confusion. It's like the playbook of Satan. You know, we talk about this, and Scripture actually explicitly says this. We have an enemy that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. How does he do that? Isolation, assimilation, indoctrination, confusion. God's Word is giving us the play-by-play of how our enemy is going to try to attack us. We'd be fools to ignore it. This equips us to be aware, to have our minds on guard against these things. So when, something, when we hear something and it doesn't line up with the Word of God, what do we say? Well, this is an indoctrination. When there's something that says, well, you know, culturally that things have changed so much about that, well, where is that potentially assimilation? Where is confusion being added in when it comes to things like marriage and family, even sexuality? Where is isolation being added in when it says that this is the only time that we have religious freedom in this country? We face these things today as individuals, as a church, and yet they present us our mission field. So how will we be equipped to live for the things of God? I think that there's actually a place for us to address what we have been blessed to have in this church, in this generational spectrum of all the seasons of life that are listening to me online right now, that are sitting right here as we are gathered together, I think it's right for us to take a moment to address something. If we know the schemes of the enemy, if God's word equips us and helps us to see them, well then what are we basing our lives on and how we're living them right now? So let's start with the most obvious, teens and young adults. I think it's easy to start here because it, clo- it so closely matches Daniel's life in the season of life that he was in in, this, in today's passage. So if you're here 
I know that we have those that are here from everything from fourth grade and up. If you're here and you fall into that, into young adulthood, to your mid-twenties, these are formative years for you. No doubt. What foundation are you forming for your life? What are the things that you say, I'm going to build on this? Does it have to do with wealth or knowledge? Does it have to do with the things that, that uh, are wonderful about our, our community and our economy and different things that we have opportunities for? Or is it based on the things of God, the things that are going to be lasting? What foundations are you building for your life today? Are you preparing for the season ahead? Are you preparing for seasons when God may bless you with that, that income that you desire? When God may bless you with that wife, that spouse, or that, that, those children that you may desire. Don't wait until then to get ready. What foundations are you building now? What about young couples? I've had the privilege over this last year to, to do pastoral counseling and premarital counseling for young couples. And I love seeing how in love these young couples are with each other. But how dangerous love is as a foundation. At least in these human relationships. Because love can be so easily fleeting by the moment. What foundation are you building on today? What foundation are you building on as you realize that you are now expecting a child? All of a sudden, your worldview begins to fracture, doesn't it? I know the feeling. I've been there. I remember every time that Stephanie would tell me she was pregnant, I think I was paid an hourly rate at the time. For some reason, I would start working extra, like it was doing something. All of a sudden, I would just be like, I need to pick up all the hours that I can. I have another mouth to feed. There was something in, inside of me that just kicked in in that moment. I couldn't quite explain it. But I'll tell you what it was based on. It was based on a fear of I have no idea what's coming next. Still don't. Maybe you know that feeling exhilaration and fear kicking in at one time that's called parenting and it's a beautiful blessing that will drive you to your knees in dependence before the Lord I'm okay with my knees being a foundation before the Lord in this season of life but young parents young married couples what are you building on I think it is important to understand that your role is God's word tells you what your role is. Your role is the primary disciple maker no matter what your schooling choice is. There was a season in our family that homeschooling was what was the best option for us as a family. I am a fan of homeschooling. I were homeschooled. <laughs> yeah, mom's getting on to me for that one. Okay. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful schooling option. I think it's a very practical, direct discipleship. But we came into seasons of life where that wasn't the best option for our family. We are currently in a season of life where that's not the best option for our family. 
But no matter what your schooling option is, whether it's homeschooling, whether it's private school, whether it's public school, guess what never changes your role as the primary disciple maker in your children's lives. Never outsource that. Whether it's a private school or a Christian school, which sometimes just means you're paying to have your children exposed to the same garbage of the world. I'm sorry to tell you that. It's the truth. Sometimes that's an expensive lesson. If I've saved you any money, please give it toward Faithful 22. Your role never changes. Never outsource that. What about older families? I would consider my family in this category. Scripture tells us not to grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. Keep pursuing one another's hearts. Keep submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Keep crying out in desperation. Never get to a place where you don't need your Savior. All right, we're covering the spectrum here. What about our older adults or those that I I do mean this lovingly, our founding members of this church? Have you given thought... Have you given thought to what your post-retirement years will actually look like? Can I just say that as your pastor, I feel like we're kind of figuring this out a little too late. We gave a lot of focus over the years to what it was going to look like to be families who were then establishing other families, other households in the name of of the kingdom of God. We gave a lot of thought to what it looked like to give uh, attention to the, the child rearing years. We gave a lot of thought as to what it looked like to establish young couples into young families. We gave a lot of thought when it came to being young adults or teens who were on fire for the things of God. And I think that all of those were right things to give thought to. I'm not ignoring that. I think we may have just missed a season of life. Your calling as a follower of Jesus doesn't change just because you've worked in some way toward the American dream. American dream. I think that there are right biblical principles about retirement that that do inform, there are precepts that inform how it is that we should look to prepare for retirement age. But can we be stirred to ask what your role is what your calling still is as disciples and disciple makers in this season of life? Your role as a child of God hasn't changed at all, which means that you're still on mission. How? I want you to write me this week and tell me. See Jesse at MetroLife.org. There's threes in that, and you can figure out with the order based on our website. See, we're going to see in our next section of our passage, and we really are going to get there. Woo! All right, buckle up. We really are going to get there. But I don't want to rush these things.
because they matter for us as a church. Daniel resolved himself to the things of the Lord. He made a determination in his heart. So let me ask you this, what resolutions, what determination, what firmly fixed conviction are you holding fast to right now in your season of life? This is where I believe community groups are such a vital and critical part of the life of the church. It's where we open our lives, the things that we're facing, the new seasons of life that we're in, and we commit to one another and before the Lord. We commit to continue to grow in his ways. Let's keep going. Commit yourself to God with all of your being. Make it a point to never waver from your core beliefs. This is where we're talking about convictions. Daniel and his friends were, had been forced into Babylon. They have been put into this context, not of their own choosing, but they had a decision to make in the midst of these military and political actions that are happening around them. Will they let Babylon get into them? And they made a decision in their heart. No. I may be taken to Babylon, but Babylon will not take hold of me. Let's continue to read together in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord my king, who is the one who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So would you endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. That's pretty bold. I'm not talking about being vegetarian. I'm talking about test and see and deal with me accordingly. That's a bold move. What is Daniel doing in the midst of this? He is resisting the temptation to defile himself with the things of the world. Now, I do believe that this in talking about, I know that there's a very popular book out there on the Daniel diet. I am not here to comment on that because I believe this is more about spiritual health than a healthy body through diet. Yes, I do believe that they play off of one another. How about we just start with the basics? Resist the temptation to defile yourself with the things of the world. Before we have to get into dietary conversations, please. It goes on to talk about how it is that Daniel seeks to win the favor of those in authority when possible. We see that in verses 9 and 10. And then he wisely offers solutions in alternative. There is a shrewdness at work here that we can learn from in the way that Daniel approaches the authorities. And we actually see here that there are three different levels of the king's court and the king's authority over Daniel and his friends that he interacts with. But it is a bold step. 
Back to Sinclair Ferguson on this passage. The way that we think about God, ourselves, and others, the world, determines the way that we live. The secret of faithfully living for God today lies in the way that we think. We are not to be conformed to the world, says Paul, yet how can we avoid it? Christians have their lives transformed by the renewing of their minds. We see that in Romans 12, 1 and 2. This, Paul says, is where the true worship of God begins. I'd like to expand on Sinclair's point here for just a moment. I hope he doesn't mind. Some years ago, there was a commercial for the organization now known as UNCF, and the ad had this stirring music playing in the background that led to the tagline that the mind is a terrible thing to waste. And you know what? That's still true today. The mind is a terrible thing to waste. But God's Word tells us something about the mind, that a renewed mind is a powerful tool for the use by a sovereign God. A renewed mind is a powerful tool for use by a sovereign God. How do we think about this? The believer with renewed strength will be powerful to serve others in the same way that an eagle just soars on the currents of the wind, we're told in Isaiah. The softened, uncallous heart will beat for things that are beyond the moment in time for something lasting that will drive the believer to serve the long-term greatest needs of those that they come in contact with. Imagine the possibilities that our infinite God provides for His finite people. The mind is a terrible thing to waste, but a renewed mind is a powerful tool in the hand of our Creator. Lastly this morning, devotion and faithfulness find their blessing in God Himself. There's little doubt that Daniel and his Friends' responses had to be fueled by faith, perhaps even a little bit of angst, realizing they are putting their lives on the line. They had settled in their hearts long ago, not to defile themselves with the things of the world. Compromise was a word that it was not in their vocabulary when it came to spiritual conviction and commitments, and we see that God honors this in an amazing way. Let's begin in verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. That's going to be important to understand when we get to the end of this book, let me tell you. At the end of that time, at that ten days, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. Excuse me, that's at the end of that three years. The king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Faith is not a trick. Faith is not something of magicians. Faith is not an act or a facade. Faith is a foundation that we can build our lives on. It's something that's going to last forever. It's something that Daniel understood in the midst of his circumstances when he said, test me and see at the end of this time. 
His faith was something very foundational for him. Last week I had the opportunity to share something broadly that I believe for a season in this past year that God was calling me to a time of obedience and laying something down in my life. There's nothing more to it than that. It was just a simple sense of, will you obey? And I shared it with Stephanie, which helped ensure that I obeyed. I meant to share this last week. It was unclear to me why it was that God asked me to do what, I, what he did for six, eight weeks over the summer. It was unclear to me. I didn't get it. I still don't understand why. Because the obedience was not to gain something from God. Obedience was the blessing. And I think we've lost perspective of that at times. When we hear the Spirit of God whispering into our ear and saying, turn to the left instead of the right. When we hear Him saying, do this and not that. When we hear Him saying, I, that is beyond what I have called you to be. There's a boundary line for us there. And we sear our consciences by crossing those lines. Sometimes obedience itself is the blessing. How often is that true in your life? There are times, because He is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, and there are blessings and promises that are a part of the covenants that He makes with His people. Even the new covenant through Jesus Christ, there are blessings and provision that comes through that. But there is also a simple beauty in listening, trusting, and obeying. Because he is abundant in his graciousness, because he is overflowing in his mercies, because he is abundant in his provision, what a good God we serve that we receive any blessing from him at all. See, these young men received a blessing. We see it in the form of physical blessing in verses 14 through 16. We see it in the form of mental blessing. I, I love this part that, that Daniel was so shrewd in the midst of this. They'd learned not to bow, but they also received additional understanding by not compromising in their faith. See, they grew in knowledge through the, the time that they were there in Babylon, but they were wise because their faith informed what they were supposed to do with that knowledge. Don't miss those things being in the midst of these passages. These narrative accounts have a lot of rich truth for us to mind. God bless them spiritually and socially as well. I've, I've shared this before. As a team, each week we review each other's notes before the sermon. And, and this week, Danny kind of got back to me on this section here. And I love what he said, so I just figured I'd quote him. It's much more doable to stand strong if you truly believe this. If we waver on this, that sometimes the obedience is the blessing, standing against our culture will be much more difficult. It's true. There are moments where what we're actually building our lives on are revealed. So what do the moments of your life reveal today? Are we embodying Paul's exhortation that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, that we do all of these things for the glory of God? This is why we see such importance in times together that we have as a church, like we have in a week, January 17th through the 23rd. 
We're going to have a week of prayer and fasting. I'm grateful for Eddie Needham and his team. There's been some emails going around, so I haven't replied to those. I'm trying to figure out where my part is in all that. But they've just been planning for you a week of prayer and fasting. Getting ready to to have us deny ourselves something of the world so that we might receive of something that lasts forever. So I hope that you join us in that. I hope you give prayerful consideration to that. Lastly, verse 21 is not so much a footnote as it is a summary of the long life of ministry that Daniel had. Most theologians believe that he served his 85 or 90 years of life in King Nebuchadnezzar's courts. Why do I highlight that? I highlight that to see something about the longevity of our faith. Because Christians are called to imitate Christ's steadfastness as he faced persecution and death for our sake. And we do this by being true to God and his message, even in times of difficulty and adversity. And you may say, Chris, you start the sentence with Jesus, but you haven't talked about him at all. Well, let's do that. Like Daniel and his friends, the Son of God would leave his home willingly taking on a human form on this earth. And he would embrace a sinful world without defiling himself for its salvation. Like these Hebrew teens, he would have favor with God and he would find favor with man. When he was still a child, his teachers, it says at the end of Luke chapter 2, were amazed at his understanding and his answers because he was wise above all time because Jesus is himself the embodiment of the wisdom of God for you and for me see Jesus Christ is the greater Daniel he is the one who refused to compromise when he faced the spiritual leader behind the earthly ruler when he faced Satan himself in the desert how was it that Satan tempts Jesus to defile himself food the things that he could be filled with to take away these earthly longings and yet Christ remained faithful. Jesus took the judgment that faithful Israel, faithless Israel deserved at the hands of another pagan empire but he walked away from death to outlast that Roman empire and every empire to come because his kingdom reigns forever. There is a certain irony if you think about it. Daniel and his friends present themselves to give faithful witness before Asphanes and Nebuchadnezzar. And then he is brought in to live at the king palace. But Jesus, in a contrast to that, Jesus would give faithful witness before Herod and Pilate. And he would ultimately be nailed to a cross on our behalf. But it's by his death that we find life. We can trust in him to live forever with him as the king of kings and lord of lords in his eternal palace. So be strong. Be of good courage in whatever God calls you to do. He is with you. And he is accomplishing more than you may know.